And so they need to pay attention and they also need to be aware of the danger that can creep in when, when you start simplifying language for a lay reader or even a, an expert science reporter. There's always, a, there's always a kind of reduction from the peer-reviewed science to the press release. And you've got to be very careful because in, in English especially, when you reduce statements down to make them punchier and easier to understand, it's very easy to at the same time exaggerate just as a matter of course. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Today, I want to talk about hype in science journalism. We've all been there. Some friend shares an article saying they always knew it. Cheese is in fact just like heroin. People are commenting, saying it's about time someone proved that cheese was in fact like heroin and it's a massive government conspiracy. Others are commenting, saying it can't possibly be true. You read the article. The news article does cite a study claiming that cheese is addictive. It cites experts saying that cheese produces evil opiates designed to get you hooked on cheese. This sounds ridiculous. But in fact, this did happen. And it's only one example of what happens when hype in journalism gets a little or a lot out of hand. Some readers quickly blame the journalist or the media outlet for overhyping the study. Others blame the scientists for their fame-seeking ways. And yes... Both of these groups could be at fault. Journalists and scientists have a responsibility to both find and tell the truth. But there's something in between, a little something called a press release. And that press release might have more to do with hype than anyone reading the news might suspect. How do you find out where hype in news comes from? You do science, obviously. And here we have Chris Chambers, a neuroscientist at Cardiff University in Wales, who has done that science for us. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Great to be here. All I can think about is cheese now. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Also addictive. <laughs> um, so you're a neuroscientist, and you usually work on things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which I actually should definitely do a podcast about. <laughs> think about it. Um, and brain imaging, uh, such as fMRI. What made you want to study press releases? Well, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it's. Uh, I was saying on, on Twitter the other day that this is the most unexpected research project I've ever been involved in in my life. And in many ways, that's true. I mean, if you go back, this whole journey that we've been on um, studying the role of press releases in the news and, and ways of improving science journalism really takes us back to 2011. Um, there was a period in, during 2011, which some of your listeners may remember, particularly the UK-based ones, where we had this these terrible riots sweeping across England. Um, and, and it was a big news story. And it so happened that some colleagues of mine had um, a paper coming out in a peer-reviewed journal at that time showing a relationship between concentrations of a certain chemical in the brain and aggression in men. And this press release was issued, unfortunately, in a case of kind of bad timing, it came out during these riots and it created this media circus that really uh, all of us who are watching this unfold were quite surprised by because, you know, we were absolute greenhorns. We, were, we knew nothing about working in the media back then. And all of a sudden, these headlines started jumping up saying, brain chemical lacks spurs rioting, say scientists. And you had tabloid, um, tabloid newspapers, if you want to call them newspapers, you know, saying that scientists at Cardiff University were developing a drug to stop men rioting and to stop drunks and brawls and this kind of stuff. And it was an absolute circus. And, and we ended up getting in, to cut a long story short, we ended up getting into this kind of debate at that time throughout 2011 and 2012 with a range of science journalists and, um, and others who are kind of part of this process about what we can do to improve the state of science journalism. And through this debate, um, coming out the other side of it, one of the key determinants, it turned out, well, as proposed, was press releases. What was the press release saying? As you pointed out in your introduction, press releases are this kind of intermediary between the science that we see in peer-reviewed journals and the news stories that appear. So we began thinking, well, you know, we're scientists. We don't really know the effect that press releases have on science news. How can we go about studying this? And it's from there that we developed this, this research program to look at it. And it's been, as I say, quite an unexpected ride. Now, I wanted to get to kind of the specifics what 
is a press release exactly what is a press release so it's a good question <laughs> i guess a lot of people to your average listener they won't care that's like something they don't really interact with so a press release is what we call an information subsidy it's basically a document a very short punchy document which summarizes um, some peer-reviewed science for the purposes of generating news interest so it's typically distributed by a university's or a journal's um, press office or public communications department, and they issue this um, to uh, a, usually a network of science writers and journalists and others who, who write news stories on science. And it's typically issued around the time that the peer-reviewed article is going to appear in the journal. And there can be embargoes around this and so on. But basically, this document comes out and it's designed to tell the journalist, hey, here's something interesting. Here's something cool that we want you to pay attention to. We want you to write about this piece of science. Here's what the science was about. Um, here are some maybe some quotes even from the researchers. And it's the, the idea of the press release originally was simply to raise news interest and to get um, to get science journalists interested in writing about this particular piece of science. And how does it differ from actual media coverage or science journalism? Well, in a way, that's part of the problem. It doesn't differ enough. So what we often find is that news stories about science are cannibalized from the press releases that are issued by the institutions that have supported the science. So for, as a typical example, you might find a press release on a, on a particular, say, health news story, a particular, I should say, science story about, say, uh, diabetes or something. And the press release will be written as a kind of proxy news story. They're very sophisticated these days, these press releases. You know, it will contain a summary of the study in lay terms. It will contain a link to the article. It will contain some quotes. It may even contain some independent quotes because press officers are realizing that science journalists face this intense pressure, these intense newsroom pressures to cover so many stories in a, in a very short space of time. And so they are creating very sophisticated press releases that are basically news stories, except with one key difference. They're not written by an independent source. They're written by a press communications department. And so these go out. Um, they... A good journalist will pick up a press release, read the original source article and write something quite different. They'll talk to different experts. They will do some research of their own. They'll, they'll synthesize something unique out of that. Um, and so that, that, that's, that will differ quite substantially from the press release. What we often see, though, is a, is a high level of overlap between the press release and um, the news story that originates. And here is where I break in to let people know that Press releases are not just held secretly between universities and journalists. Most of them are actually public, and many of them are published on science on sites that can and are mistaken for news. So every time you see an article on, say, Science Daily, mm, Science, Science Daily publishes press releases. That is a press release. Every time you see an article on Eureka Alert. That's a press release. Eureka Alert publishes press releases. Other sites such as fizz.org also republish press releases. Um, and I also think it's important to say that this is not inherently a bad thing. Press releases can have good information. But as you say, it also means you're getting the information directly from a university that wants to make its scientists and itself look good. It's a biased source. That's not to say it's a bad source. It's just a bias source. Right. Exactly. Now, how does a press release get made? So the process, there are a number of ways it can be made. The, the, the most common way for UK institutions where we focused our efforts is it's a collaborative exercise between the press office, which will um, be staffed by public communications professionals. They're not scientists. They're, they're, they're professionals purely within public relations and the scientists and the authors behind the original research. So what usually happens is um, the press officer will create a draft of a press release based upon their reading of the research article. Often that's derived from some kind of discussion or interview that they have. That is sent to the scientist who can have the opportunity to edit it and to make any corrections or adjustments, and then an agreed version is then distributed. And... So you've been studying kind of these press releases, you've been studying the process of, you know, science journalism and media hype for a while, you mentioned you actually kind of 
came to the conclusion to study it around 2011. And you've published your first paper on hype in press releases in 2014. How did you decide to kind of tackle that problem? What did you decide to do? Well, being somewhat younger and naive, we thought, yes, let's answer everything at once. So we, you know, we could have done a small study, but we decided instead to collect all of the press releases issued by Russell Group Universities in the UK in one year, in a one year period, um, during the 2011 period. And then we wanted to know, okay, given this set of press releases, um, we'll then extract all of the news stories that originated from those press releases, okay? And then we're going to go back to the original article from which that press release originated. And we're going to ask, in cases where there is exaggeration in the news story relative to the journal article, the peer-reviewed scientific record, how often is does that exaggeration or that hype begin life in the press release? So the idea is to try and track the change in information. When there is exaggeration, there's two possibilities here. One is that it's the journalist. It's all the journalist's fault. The journalists are simply adding exaggeration. The press hey release <laughs> is a perfect simple. It's, well, it's a hypothesis. I, oh, I always sure. <laughs> about this. But it, you know, one of the ideas, and in fact, in fact, were you to poll scientists, they would say, yeah, absolutely, yes, it's the science. It's the it's the journalist's fault always, always. Um, but, you know, what, what, one of those explanations was, you know, the press release will be a perfectly accurate simplification of the science. And then if you look at the news story, there's going to be, be a big leap in exaggeration. And my more skeptical hypothesis was that, in fact, the press release probably overeggs the cake and then the journalist does the rest. So it's probably more of a grade, graded um, elevation. Um, and so we did this big study, which um, took us far longer than we expected, like most projects I get involved in. Uh, and at the end of it, we found, to, you know, very simply that, in fact, yes, most of the time, um, most health-related um, exaggeration, so exaggeration in health-related science news, began life within the press releases that were issued by these Russell Group universities. And... I should note that part of the reason it probably took so long to do this study is because you looked at 462 press releases. Yeah, with this really complicated coding system as well. And you were reading all of the papers behind them, right? Yep. So we had a team of very clever um, research interns um, and undergraduates who who um, got involved in this project. And, you know, the nice thing about this is we didn't have to be experts in the field because we were treating the peer-reviewed scientific record as that was essentially our ground truth. That was our baseline. Now, you know, one can say, well, what is what if that's exaggerated? And that's a whole different discussion which would require experts to look at. But we were basically saying, let's assume, you know, for the sake of argument that the peer-reviewed science, the journal article, is a true reflection of what's going on. And then what we're going to do is we're going to code things like um, the study design. Was it, a, was it a study design that allowed a causal inference to be made between two things? So X causes Y or con- consumption of red wine causes cancer? Um, or was it a study design which only allowed an association to be drawn? So uh, uh, people who drink more red wine uh, have a higher risk of contracting heart disease, which would be an association. You couldn't say in that type of context that it was causal. So, you know, you can you can look at that element. You can also look at um, was it a was it a study in animals? And if so, did it draw conclusions about humans? And also you can say, what advice did it give for readers? These were the three categories we were interested in. And then we coded those very same things in the press release. So, again, what sort of what sort of causal inference did it make? What sort of strength of claim did it make based on the results? What sort of claims did it make that were relevant to humans, say generalizing from animals to humans, and what kind of advice did it give for readers? And so, we're, and then we did the same thing in the news, right? So we're basically coding the same very basic elements across that cycle. And we're asking, at what point does exaggeration creep in? And so some of the markers of hype that you might be looking for would be things like, um, say, the paper says, oh, there's a correlation between bacon and cancer in mice. And then if there's hype that's introduced somewhere, it might say, oh, bacon causes cancer in humans. Yeah, in pregnant women. You know, you can even go further. So that's right. Exactly. That's exactly the kind of exaggeration. A really common one would have been, 
um, a, a big epidemiological study which correlates, you know, a range of different lifestyle choices or whatever with, uh, you know, like, can, you know, nutritional choices and that kind of thing with, say, risk of contracting certain diseases. And there might be an association found, a correlation between one and another. Um, and then the press release might say um, something causal. It might say, you know, uh, consumption of beef uh, elevates risk of heart disease. And elevates is a very causal term. You're saying that it actually does something. Beef consumption lifts it up, it changes it, it increases that risk. It's a causal statement. And we went back, we would, in that case, we would go back to the original article, we would look for causal phrasing. And if there wasn't any, but the press release did have it, then we would say, that's exaggeration. And we would code that. And then we would go to the news story and we would say, we would ask, um, what did the news story say? Did it, did, it, did it remain faithful to the original science or did it parrot what the press release said? And of course, what you find, and it's no big surprise, is that the news stories tend to follow the, the, um, the strength of claim in the press release. Yeah. And also, it's important to note that some of the concepts we're dealing with, like, for example, risk, elevated risk, that's, it's kind of a tough concept. You can say, oh, risk was elevated 200%. But if mm. the original amount of risk was one out of every 10,000 people, right? a 200% increase is still really small. Yeah, I mean, this is and this is the difference between absolute risk and relative risk. And there are guidelines out there, which uh, such as released by the Science Media Center in the UK, which recommend that when journalists are covering health related news stories, they always make sure to state the absolute risk. If you're going to say that there, that that um, some particular medication triples the risk of X. You should say what that baseline risk is, because if the risk at is 0.0001% and you're and it goes to 0.003%, who cares? Is that really a news story? Or at least if they do, if people do care, they should know where they're starting from. But just saying triples the risk is a whole other level of of misrepresentation that goes on very often, because it's of course it sounds like it's a bigger deal. So you looked for these kind of markers of hype and you actually looked across the paper, the press release, and then the subsequent media coverage. Um, how, how bad was, was the hype? Like how frequent was it? Well, it varied depending on what we looked at, but it's generally about a, somewhere between a third to a half of the press releases that were issued contained some level of exaggeration along one of our three dimensions of interest, which was strength of causal claims, generalization between, say, animals and humans, and advice to readers. Uh, so around one in three to one in five contains some level of exaggeration. Man, a third to a half is depressing. <laughs> is that about what you expected? Is it more? It was, yeah. In fact, I thought it might be worse. I, I, I suspect there probably is even more exaggeration than that if you look into other areas. And we had to keep it, for practical reasons, fairly limited in what we looked at. I also think that it's quite likely that the original research articles themselves are exaggerated relative to what is, in fact, uh, can be legitimately claimed on the basis of the research. But that's an issue which goes out of scope for us because you have to be a, a field expert to make that judgment. So, But I think the general point is I, I, I've always felt with this research that we're looking at the the most easily observable component of exaggeration, and it's the tip of the iceberg, really. And when there was this hype in press releases, um, you know, between about a third and, and a half of the press releases, how often did it then end up in the media coverage? Most of the time. So, you know, mo most of the, most of the um, exaggeration that you find within the news begins life within the press release. So there's a, now that, you know, I have to be careful here because this was a retrospective observational study. So we can't say for certain that the exaggeration in the press release causes exaggeration in the news. Otherwise, we would be making precisely the kind of inferential error that we would be finding or at least accusing many of these press releases and, and journalists of, of making themselves, you know. So we have to be very careful in the kinds of strength of claim we can make on that basis. But basically, if you, if you follow the trajectory, um, the overall conclusion from that research, which we did in uh, 
2014 and again in 2016, looking at, at um, press releases issued by journals, was that most of the time, if you see exaggeration in health-related science news relative to the original scientific research that was reported in a journal, most of the time that exaggeration will already be present within the press release that was issued by either the university or by the journal. And of course, that correlation, it is a correlation, which is not causation, between hype in the press release and hype in the media. That doesn't say how often um, a press release ended up getting taken up by the media, but you did actually look at that. So does yeah. how does hype influence uptake? So for example, um, does an unexaggerated press release get as much media coverage as an exaggerated press release? Yes, essentially. Uh, in all of the work we've done over the years on this, we've never found any convincing evidence that hype leads to more news uptake. And this this is interesting because the received wisdom within, you know, public um, relations professionals is that hype works. You know, this is why they do it. Um, this is why it's permitted. Um, this is why scientists sometimes uh, permit exaggeration to, to occur within their press releases because there's an assumption that look it doesn't really matter too much it's all a bit of fun let's get some news coverage we'll you know that, let's just see what happens there's an assumption it will generate more news uh it doesn't and i you know on the, i think that's good news in a way because it shows that journalists even though many of them feel this great pressure to cannibalize press releases they're not using the hype in the press release as a way of making that decision they're making a more nuanced decision. So that challenges this received wisdom. And I think it gives us hope that if press officers and scientists work together more effectively to reduce hype in their press releases, to align the strength of claims in a press release more closely with the original science, there's, there's hope that we can kind of have our cake and eat it. You can generate the same news impact, but you can have higher quality news arising from that impact. And I think it's important to note here that press releases are not generated by computers. People write them. <laughs> Those people are called press officers. Most of them are probably not any kind of lawful evil of any kind. <laughs> and some of them have right. a lot of scientific knowledge and they're very good at their jobs. What did they end up thinking of your, of your 2014 findings? <laughs> Well, this was interesting. I mean, uh, we were very careful throughout our research at that time leading up to 2014 not to just, you know, lay the blame at their feet and, you know, not to say, well, okay, maybe the journalists aren't adding all the hype, but the press officers are doing it. You know, it's important not to just put, point the blame to another group of non-scientists. And I, I do have a lot of respect for press officers who often un don't have specialized training in science. They are relying on the integrity and the the attention of the scientists to get these press releases right. And so we made a very clear point in our, uh, our BMJ article in 2014 that, you know, this isn't a blame game. And if there is blame to be laid, really it, it, it's to be laid at the feet of scientists for allowing press releases to be issued with hype in them and, for, and at journalists for not questioning the claims within press releases and just cannibalizing them. Um, but perhaps beyond that even, it's the system. It's the idea that this increasing culture of competition between institutions and competition between news outlets drives this, this kind of arms race in bullshit. And that's something that I think um, needs to be tackled at, at, at its kind of root cause, at its root source. So did press officers get upset? Or... Well, it's interesting. So w we always knew this was correlational, this work. This, we could never make causal claims. And so we needed to go a step further in order to really determine whether or not press releases were leading causally to changes in the news. We needed to do a randomized trial. We needed to go in and actually alter press releases in positive ways, making them better, making them more accurate, and see what effect that had on the news. But to do this, you have to work with press officers. And of course, we just published this paper in the BMJ saying, hey, guys, uh, look over here. Um, all of this hype you're reading in the science news, guess what? Ah, look, it comes from press, press releases. And so, you know, it was, a, it was a diplomatic challenge convincing them um, that we were, we were, you know, on their side in a way and trying to do just plain research on this. And generate some evidence. So it, I think the response from the press officers we got at that time was quite mixed. 
some of them thought that our article was an attack on their profession. And I can see where they were coming from. So basically, this article comes out of nowhere, written by people that are not connected in any direct direct way with um, the world of comms, where scientists primarily, with some journalism academics involved. Um, and here we are passing judgment as they see it on their profession. So some of them got, got a little bit um, defensive. Others were less offended by it and were more willing to talk. So it was this... During that time in 2014, 2015, when we, we decided we needed to take this research into the world and do a proper trial, we had to really try and smooth over all of those relationships to get as many of these press officers to work with us on this trial. Did you get hung up on? <laughs> uh, no, we never got hung up on. I did get told off once very severely going to a press office in um, a university in the UK where we turned up and was given a solid lecture for about 90 minutes. I was hung, on, hung up on for about 90 minutes, I guess. You could nice. Call that. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was it – was, it, at the same time, there were some press departments we went to which were like, wow, this is great. This is – you know, I've been concerned about this for 10 years or 20 years in my work, and it's great to see somebody doing research like this. And, yes, we'd love to be involved. So there, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, it, I learned an awful lot about the politics of working in this environment and the differences between different institutions and this whole idea of um, reputational risk that, you know, these are people who do communications for a living who uh, are dealing with research that is, you know, criticizing the way in which communications happens. And so it's 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 quite it's quite challenging for them. I think to it was challenging for them to kind of process what we were doing. And what you did was you actually I love this went in and did an intervention like someone would do for like a drug in a mouse, except it was right. for hype in a press release. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about what you did and how you kind of dealt with your experimental groups because there was deliberate lack of hype and then there was deliberate insertion of hype right so we never inserted hype um we were very careful not to um not to you know and this was important ethically as well and you know this was a very early discussions we had with journalists who were very who were some of them were a bit prickly about this idea of us doing experiments on press releases because ultimately you know we're not trying to do an experiment on press releases we're trying to actually do an experiment on the news because that was our outcome measure was can we improve the news and i think some of the journalists who are involved as consultants and you know um counsel on this were, were warning us this was potentially quite dangerous uh, yes um, <laughs> uh, you know for democracy and so on and of course as time showed you know going beyond 2016 2017 up to now you know we've got much more severe problems facing fake news and democracy and that kind of thing than you know we had back then but still this was an issue so we were very careful not to um, add hype to press releases. Our, our aim with this trial was to alter the press releases to make them more accurate, to to align the claims in the press releases more strongly with the study design than they would otherwise have been. So you took press releases that, you know, might have started out with some hype and kind of dehyped them. Yeah, essentially, yeah. So we had we had four different arms in the trial. So in the first arm... What we did was we changed the headline and the main claims in the press release to match the strength of the conclusion that was allowed by that design. So, for example, if the study was a correlational study which um, associated a particular behavior with a particular disease risk, for example, like, you know, red wine and cancer risk, um, but the press release used causal language. So if it said wine causes cancer, we would alter that headline or that main claim to align with what was said in, in the journal article. So we would change that to be, to be a, an associative statement. So, for example, uh, drinking red wine is correlated with or is associated with increased cancer risk, but we would remove the causal claim. That was one of the interventions. In the second one, um, we added an explicit statement about this to the to the press release to to make it absolutely clear explicitly to the to the journalist what kind of um, conclusion is allowed from this design. So, for example, in in that context, we might say this was a retrospective epidemiological study which allows us to observe all the different potential variables involved in you know alcohol consumption and disease risk. 
but um, does not allow us to conclude that drinking wine causes cancer. So it's a, an explicit caveat that we introduce into the press release to really make that point absolutely clearly to the, to the reporter. In the third arm, we basically gave both of the interventions, so it's kind of like the super drug. And in the fourth arm, it was like a, that was like the placebo condition. That was where we made some unrelated change to the press release, um, like changing a one word to another. Um, and, you know, the idea there was just that it was, it was an, a vague attempt at blinding the press officer to what we were doing and, and keeping the process as similar as possible to the, to the active conditions, whilst, you know, of course, making the, uh, some kind of change. And then we just issued those press releases and we collected um, the news and studied the news. What effect did we have on the news? It's kind of wild, isn't it? I mean, we're doing an experiment here on the news. Yes. <laughs> so did, did you tell any of the press officers that their releases were hyped? Like that, that they were, that you, like, you found hype in their press releases and you were getting rid of it? Like, did you, did you kind of be like, hey, this is well, fucked up they a bit? Well, they kind of they had they they would have known anyway because when we made these changes, so when we edited the press release, we would track changes. They would see it obviously because they had to know where the changes were because they then had to send these press releases back to the academics who authored the original research because those academics would have to approve of those changes, and so they could see if you know that it would be obvious to the press officer if they were paying attention that you know we had changed a causal claim to a correlational claim. Um, I don't know how often they actually bothered paying attention because you you got to remember these press officers work at a lightning speed and to even get them to work with us on a trial like this was quite difficult from a practical point of view because these things are written in a very short time scale. They have to go out on a deadline. We were turning these things around, you know, within hours of getting them. Um, I'm not sure how often they looked at that, but had they done so, it would have been very obvious, you know, when we were detecting and correcting hype. And what did you end up finding in this second trial? You published this actually in 2019, but it was conducted in 2016. Is that? That's so, yeah. So the trial began, it basically we ran it during that period of, we registered it in 2015, I think. And we ran it basically from 2017 to 2018 um, because it took much longer than we thought it would. It was meant to run for 12 months, but um you know, the, the reality of doing this was that we had quite a complex protocol and um, the, 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 the volume of press releases that were coming through wasn't as fast as we thought it would be and so on, lots of boring reasons. But it basically took a little bit longer to run than we thought. Um, and so we were, but, you know, we're scraping all of the news that's coming out of these press releases, but we haven't opened the box yet. You've got to remember that you've also got, when you do a trial like this, you have to blind the analyst who's analyzing the news that it's imperative that they don't know which condition that particular news story was in, right? Otherwise, you introduce a kind of coding bias where the researcher who's analyzing the news, if they knew that, well, this news story was in the condition one that got the, the this particular intervention, then they might they, that might bias even unconsciously the way they code this. So we had to have a, a process there where the researcher who was analyzing the news was blinded to which arm the press release was in. And so we went through this process, collected all the data. We ended up with sev about 75 press releases per arm. And then we, um, the, all of this time, that analyst is, is analyzing the news. And then we opened the box and assigned them all to their groups. And, and, um, and what we found was interesting. So one of, the, one of the interesting challenges we found along the way was that, and we, we knew this as we were doing the trial, that something was, something was going on here. So, so a lot of the time, more often than we expected, Many of these press releases were coming to us that already had the interventions in them that we were trying to test. So unlike what the case with the, you know, the 2014 study where we looked at 2011 press releases, uh, where there was quite a lot of hype and exaggeration, we were finding that a lot of these press releases that were coming in were already pretty good. So a lot of them had caveats in them. They were well aligned, you know, they were, they were, they were pretty good. And so if they went into one of our arms where we were meant to be applying this intervention, it was like the patient had already cured themselves of the disease before we even gave them the drug. Was this or, because you, you think they were, they knew they were being watched or? Well, it's possible. Yeah. So the, one of the explanations is, is what's called a Hawthorne effect. So there's this phenomenon in trials research where 
separately from the placebo effect, just, just someone being in a trial can change the way they behave because they know they're in a trial. It's almost impossible to put someone in a randomized trial without them knowing that they're in a trial. And so this could have been a factor. It could have been that the press officers even unconsciously changed the way they were writing the press releases uh, because they knew at the interventions, obviously, that we were planning to do. And it might have been that, you know, they were, they were, they were changing the way they were working. Now, another possibility, the one that I hope is true, goes beyond the trial. I kind of hope, and this may be a naive hope, but I kind of hope that the paper we published in 2014, which was really impactful and, you know, generated an awful lot of news of its own, it'd be kind of nice if that itself served as an intervention and that when press officers read our BMJ article or indeed one of the, you know, hundreds of news stories that were written about it, that that led them to change their practice anyway. So kind of like a spontaneous adoption. Whichever of those explanations is in fact true, it presented a technical problem for the trial because what happens is if the forearms contain this kind of spontaneous adoption where, you know, uh, one of the, the press release comes in, it's already both of the interventions we seek to test are already there, it still gets randomly assigned to one of the groups. So you end up with what's called condition mixing, where essentially um, it's, it'd be like running a drug trial and you have a, a, a placebo group and an active group, but the patients are already taking the drug, some of them, and they go into the placebo group, even though they're taking the drug themselves. So it, it potentially dilutes the ability to detect what's going on because of this dilution effect. So what did you end up show? Like, could you show that press release hype begat journalism hype or that it didn't? I mean, how much did the dilution end up affecting your results? So what we, so what we did, so we, there's a type of analysis in randomized trials called intention to treat or ITT. Now intention to treat is the gold standard way of analyzing a trial because it preserves the randomization. So regardless of whether or not the press release already had the intervention and therefore we couldn't give it the intervention because it already had it, um, that, that press release would go into whichever random group it was assigned. And that's the gold standard because that, uh, that preserves the randomization in a trial which allows the researcher to then draw a causal conclusion at the end. Because of the randomization, they can say that, that if there is a difference between this condition and that condition, that whatever changed between those was the causal element. This is the beauty of randomized trials. But because of this condition mixing, I think, our interventions didn't turn out to be very effective when we looked at that most rigorous gold standard analysis. So we only found a very small effect on news headlines from the interventions that was beneficial. Um, so what we did, so given that that was the case, we decided to do something called an as-treated analysis. This is a post hoc unregistered analysis that you need to take with, with a grain of salt. But what we decided to do was say, was to say, okay, Rather than preserving the randomization, which we all also reported, but rather than preserving the randomization, what if we do a, another analysis based upon whichever intervention the press release actually got? So regardless of whether we gave it the intervention via the randomization or whether the press officer being diligent did it already. Okay. So that means that, you know, if the claims in the headline were already aligned with the journal article, it would go into that group, um, regardless of whether we gave it the intervention or not. So this is what's called an as-treated analysis. Now, it's potentially more sensitive because you're actually looking at what the press release, um, how it was actually written, what it contained, rather than which group it was in. Um, when you look at the results that way, we indeed see what looks like a massive effect so when the press releases were aligned with the new, with the original article, so when they were made to be more accurate, when we introduced caveats, we found a big increase in the percentage of news stories that were also accurate, you know, roughly doubled from about 30 to 60% based on headlines and news claims. So that, that would suggest, hang on, this was potentially very effective. However, there is a massive caveat to this, which is that because we violated the randomization to do this analysis, we can no longer make the causal claim that the change in the press release caused the change in the news. So we have to roll back from the, that strong conclusion and we end up kind of like where we were in 2014, but with additional evidence to say that when you make a change to a press release, there is a very strong association with what goes on in the news and you can 
you can make that change in a way which um, benefits or is likely to benefit the news, but we can never make that strong causal conclusion. And were you able to look at in this one, in the 2014 study, you noted that, you know, the hype amount did not change how much a media outlet actually picked up a study. Were you able to look at that in the 2019 study as well? That's right. So that was another one of our key outcome measures, because, of course, you know, to to press officers, the volume of news that's generated is a is a very important factor. It's one of their key performance indicators at many institutions. So, you know, it's important for them to know that if we if we introduce these interventions for improving the quality of press releases, do does it generate more, less or the same amount of news? And what we found in the trial in the 2019 study was pretty similar to what we found in the earlier work, which was no evidence that these interventions reduce news uptake. Basically, it was a, it was a flat line. Regardless of whether or not you, we made the intervention or not, the percentage of press releases that generated news was about the same. It was around 50 to 60%. So that's good news. If you look at the as-treated analysis, the general picture you can draw from this is you can align a press release more closely to the original science by avoiding hype and by introducing caveats without reducing the, the amount of news uptake that that press release is likely to generate. What we can't say is that there's a strong causal link between the changes that are made to those press releases and the news because of the fact that in order to, to show this effect, we had to look at what changes the press releases um, were actually subjected to rather than the ones that we would have assigned through the randomization of the trial. And this seems like a stupid question, but it bears asking. Why does it matter if studies get overhyped? Well, it's a, this is a kind of existential question, isn't it, about science reporting? Does it matter if news, is, if, if news reporting is inaccurate and hyped, does it matter? Uh, I would say it does. You, opinions may vary. People may say, who cares? Um, a lot of this research that goes into the news may not be of the greatest importance. Um, but, you know, there, are, there have been cases over the years where bad science reporting has led to very severe problems. Take the MMR scandal, for example. There are a number of cases where we can point to very extreme um, circumstances where misreporting, where regardless of where, where it comes from, has led to very negative changes in, in, in public health and public behavior. So the public do read science news and they do make decisions based on them. Now, we're dealing with, in our research, the, the, the ocean of health-related science that goes under most people's radar most of the time, unless it, say, goes onto broadcast news or into some environment where they pay a lot of attention. But I think it's it's important to be aware of the the, the low-level, that low-level exaggeration, even within that sort of, that ocean of research, even if it's a small level of exaggeration on a large scale, could do two things. It could lead to bad decisions being made by people when they're, say, you know, seeing their doctor or deciding, you know, what medication to take or something like that. Um, but it also risks reducing trust in science, I think, because you can end up in a in a situation where from one day to the next, you see news stories claiming opposite things about health. So a, a good example would be that the Daily Mail, one of our middle market tabloids here in the UK, can be shown on the record to show that almost every substance known to man both causes and cures cancer. And this is because from one day to the next, there'll be one story reporting one particular relationship as causal to the next to the next day reporting the opposite relationship as causal. If you go back to the original science, you'll never find the ability to draw causal connections. It'll always be we correlated a thousand variables with a thousand variables, and this is what showed up. But it's this kind of this creep this bracket creep, where you get the, these levels of exaggeration creeping into the news. And I think there's a there's a severe risk overall of that harming trust in science. So for me, it's a, it's a matter of principle that if we're going to, as scientists, criticize the quality of science reporting, it's our responsibility to make sure that everything we do that is within our control, and that's the peer-reviewed science, the press release, the, the interaction with the the news media is done as responsibly as possible. And this is also where I add that there is no evidence of any kind that the measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR vaccine, or indeed any vaccine of any kind causes autism. 
There is no evidence for that. Vaccines don't cause autism. Vaccinate your kids. Thank you. Right. right. <laughs> and isn't it appalling that you have to even say that? I just, at this point, I think I'm preaching to the choir. We've got a pretty science savvy audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you think, you know, the, the press releases are made when press officers do actually, they do send the text of the press releases to scientists to look at them. How do you think scientists can help kind of combat hype in press releases? Well, I think part of part of the answer comes from paying attention to what's in the press release. Uh, I think a lot of scientists, I mean, you know, this is from anecdotal conversations we'd had and some surveys we ran over the years with scientists. We, uh, scientists are very busy, and I don't think they always give a press release that's due care and attention. They feel that it falls out of their domain. They're perhaps a little more tolerant to to various levels of creative writing. Um, which go beyond what they would be able to get through the peer review process. Some of them might be even motivated by pressure to generate news themselves if that's part of their their reward structure, their institution. But I think uh, a lot of this, the, the scientist is ultimately the arbitrator on what is considered to be a sufficiently high quality press release to go out to, to see a journalist. And they are most of the time the final judgment judge on that. And they need to exercise that power very carefully and so they need to pay attention and they also need to be aware of the danger that can creep in when when you start simplifying language for a lay reader or even a, an expert science reporter there's always a there's always a kind of reduction from the peer-reviewed science to the press release and you've got to be very careful because in in english especially when you reduce statements down to make them punchier and easier to understand it's very easy to at the same time exaggerate just as a matter of course when you take a long and windy statement about one thing being associated with another but there's no causal relationship and you put them together and you say a is linked with b it's very easy for that to lead to a, a, an implicit um, elevation of the strength of inference that is occurring and i think we're not necessarily in tune with this as scientists, uh, when we approve press releases, we think we perhaps aren't paying attention, we aren't doing our due diligence. So there's a lot to be said for scientists simply paying more attention, I think, at that early stage. And of course, journalists are not blameless here. We've all got responsibilities. What should a journalist keep an eye out for when they're looking? Well, yes, well, I think the journalist, first of all, you know, and all good science journalists will do this, but not all journalists do. They should always be reading the original research article and making sure that the claims in the press release are not exaggerated. And hopefully the work that we've done over the last few years provides a kind of guidebook for the obvious ways in which press releases can and do exaggerate. And so the journalist has to be, um, to some extent, a kind of bullshit detector. They have to be able to decide whether or not the claims in the press release are justified. And they mustn't just... Um, duplicate what is in the press release because that's that's expedient. Now, I can easily say, should you should do this, you shouldn't do that. That's going to have no effect, really. It's for the it's for reporters to to take this up as a matter of as a matter of you know professional responsibility and do that. I do think, however, we can make the job of the journalist easier by not creating this problem in the first place. It's really, look where it begins. Look where it begins in the press release. Look where it begins with the scientist. If we can solve that problem at source, we can make that job much easier for the journalist downstream. It's like it's a bit like the recycling issue. It's much easier for the, the home user to sort their recycling into different boxes rather than chuck it all in and hope that somebody at, a, at, a, at a, you know, some central station does that. And, of course, you know, Journalists have responsibilities, press officers have responsibilities, scientists have responsibilities, but people are people. People make mistakes. People do stupid things. If And most of our listeners are not going to be scientists, PIOs, or journalists. They're readers. How do readers spot hype and avoid getting taken in and getting the egg on their face when they share it on Facebook? Well, that's, that is very difficult. I think one of the, my number one bit of advice to, to readers would be going with trusted sources. You know, I think there are certain, there are certain sources which, um, have a reputation perhaps for not being tremendously accurate and learning who you can trust, learning which science writers and which science journalists do a good job and following them and broadcasting their work 
and not just going with whatever comes up first on the feed, because that might not be the most accurate or the most responsible reporting. I think it is very difficult to expect the general reader to detect this kind of exaggeration, because a lot of it's quite subtle. And whilst it's, I think it's very important to eliminate, it's not the kind of stuff that most readers would automatically notice, because it, re it requires some degree of scientific training to know that it's there in the first place. Um, it requires... Um, the ability to read and comprehend basic elements of the original research, which most consumers of science news will neither have the time nor the interest nor the expertise to really do. I think it really comes down to trust. And I think this is why news organizations and press officers and, and scientists have this deep responsibility to get this right, because the ultimate consumer of this material can't be expected to fact check on top of everything else. That's not, it's not something we can ex people to expect people to do in their day-to-day -day lives. So we have to get this right. But as I say, that my number one advice to the general consumer of science news is get to know the good sources and follow those. And my number one piece of advice is, and I know I'm preaching to my choir here, for the love of God, don't share something without reading it. Sorry. <laughs> that too. Absolutely. <laughs> this happens to me on Twitter. Journalists and scientists alike are people and people always seem to share things without reading them. Maybe they're like screenshots taken out of context or quotes or tweets. Just read the whole thing before you share. Yeesh. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's important. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole psychology of, you know, people sharing stuff they agree with, regardless of whether or not they think it's true, you know, confirming biases and so on. Um, absolutely. Re reading what you're sharing is, is, is number one, really. And then I'd say, you know, if look at, look at what reaction it gets, you know, it's always, I think one of the, if I was, when I look at science that I'm not an expert in, in the news, and I want to know whether or not that's believable, there's certain people I go to. You know, there's so, so for example, if I'm, if I'm, um, if I come across a story on astrophysics, there'll be, I might go to Katie Mack on Twitter to see what she thinks, because I know she's very careful and very rigorous and she's trustworthy as a source. So there are knowing who to trust within that context after reading the original work, I think is the next step. Well, Chris, thank you so much for talking with us. And I hope that this podcast episode ends up clear and completely free of hype. Ha, me too. I, I, I'm sure someone will point out if I've, if I've messed up. If you'd like to learn more about Chris Chambers' work, we've linked to the two articles that he published, both of them open access, and some coverage about those articles at scienceforthepeople.ca. And you know what else is there? Twitter, Facebook, links to things like iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribe! Follow us! Leave us pithy comments and tell us about the time you found a hideously overhyped science story. And while you're there, take a look at our Patreon. We stay afloat because of donors like yourself. So if you can, be a friendly nerd and put a few monthly dollars in our tip jar. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>